Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. A little later in the show, we are going to talk about Russia and Syria and the United States and Donald Trump and Bashar al-Assad. Lots of things have changed since last week, and we had a chance to, to discuss that topic. And we want to talk today about what's next. Now that we've involved ourselves in the Syrian conflict in a really aggressive way, what's the next step? What's the next step that may be in the president's head? What's the next step that the Congress may be thinking about? And of course, we want to hear from you. What did you think of the military action that was taken against the Assad regime last week in response to its chemical attack on citizens in that country? How did you sort of make sense of that in the context of the refugee crisis that's going on in that country. The United States has recently said that it will not be accepting uh, the people who are fleeing the Assad regime and the civil war in Syria as refugees into this country. Uh, then as a result of the brutality that the Assad regime is raining down on those people, we say, well, we're going to take military action. Do those two things work together to form a coherent policy or are they at odds. We're going to talk about it with Aaron Reddish, who is a history professor at Wayne State University. He's got a specialization in Soviet and Russian history. And Dr. Mahunad Hamami is also going to be with us. He is the director of the Wayne County Department of Health, Veterans, and Community Wellness. They will both be here to talk about Syria. And again, we'll want to hear from you about that. Also, if you really like Detroit today, but maybe you're heading into work or moving on with your day just as we're getting started here, uh, you can still hear the full show uh, of Detroit Today on the Detroit Today podcast. If you go to iTunes or wherever you get podcasts, you can download and subscribe, and then you can listen to Detroit Today whenever you like. Uh, we're going to start today talking about the U.S. Senate. Republicans in the U.S. Senate voted last week to end the 60-vote threshold that was needed to approve Supreme Court justices. Democrats refused to broadly support nominee Neil Gorsuch because of the lingering anger that leader Mitch McConnell would not consider President Obama's pick for that seat, Merrick Garland. Senator Lindsey Graham said it could lead to the downfall of the Senate, especially if they do away with the filibuster for all legislative measures. Yet Graham voted for the so-called nuclear option in favor of simple majority voting on justices. Here's Graham speaking on the Senate floor. Not a good day. Uh, hoping it would never come, but it has. And to the extent that I've been part of the problem, I apologize to, to the future. But I think I've, at least in my own mind, tried to do the right thing as I saw it. I took a lot of heat for voting for their judges at the time, and there was a lot of hate on our side. I'm glad I did. Not that I'm not partisan, I certainly can be, but I just think the history is going down a very dark path, uh, the Senate's going down a very dark path here, and there'll never be another 98 votes for Scalia, 96 votes for Ginsburg. And that's a shame, because even though they may be different, they have one thing in common. They're good people who are highly qualified to sit on the court. And I can understand why a liberal president would choose one and a conservative president would choose another. What we're doing today is basically saying, 
we don't really care about election results anymore in the Senate. That's Senator Lindsey Graham bemoaning the the point that we've gotten to in the U.S. Senate where we're getting rid of the 60-vote requirement for Supreme Court justices, saying that it's taking the Senate down a dark path, and he apologizes to the future uh, in that speech, I think, sort of uh, understanding that the implications of this may not visit upon the Senate today, but could uh, make it a very different place tomorrow. So what is the future of the Senate, and is the chamber at risk of losing the things that make it unique? I'm going to talk about uh, the Senate in a historical context, in a constitutional context, uh, and here to help me do that is Richard Primus. He's a constitutional law expert and professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Richard, welcome to Detroit Today. Happy to be here. Yes. Uh, so let's start with how big a deal you think this is. Uh, the 60-vote requirement for Supreme Court justices is not in the Constitution. There's nothing uh, that requires that. This was a rule that the Senate had agreed to live by for uh, some period of time. How big of a deal is it that it's gone away? It's not an enormously big deal that the particular rule has gone away. The big deal is the forces that made it go away. Um, the 60-vote the rule in the Senate is a rule that when you have a well-functioning two-party system means that a party with a small majority can't just dictate whatever it wants. It also has to make some compromises with the other side and they have to work together. Sure. But that only works in a well-functioning two-party system. <laughs> and the Senate hasn't had that um, certainly for eight years and, and, and maybe for 20. And in a badly functioning two-party system, most of the time a 60-vote requirement just means paralysis. Because it, it, if, the, if the minority side and the majority side won't work together, if they won't collaborate and reach common ground and compromise, then a supermajority requirement, like 60 votes out of 100, mostly just means that Either party, well, it certainly means that the, it means that the majority party always and the minority party most of the time can simply stop things from happening. Right. But that's what happened all last year when President Obama's nominee Merrick Garland was before the Senate, and the Senate just wouldn't do anything at all. In a situation where a 60-vote requirement just means paralysis, um, I understand why people want to get rid of the 60 votes. The problem is the badly functioning party system is still there. Right? People still won't work with each other. People still won't compromise. That's really what augurs badly for the future of the chamber. Yeah. Uh, and and w when we talk about the Senate, I think it's important to also put into historical context the role of the Senate, the role of the Senate versus the role of the House. Uh, they are two very differently uh, comprised chambers uh, mm -hmm. and and the the role of the Senate in in its relationship to the executive branch which is also a little different than uh, the House of Representatives uh, talk about talk about why we have the Senate which gives each state equal representation which is Good. itself uh, a, a, a unique uh, feature and and sort of how this fits in with with the role that was imagined for the Senate when it was created. Okay, good. So there's a civics book picture of this, which is 
a little bit true. And then there's a lot of stuff that's actually really important to understand that differs from the civics book picture. Sure. The civics book picture is that the framers, when they wrote the Constitution, came up with a brilliant compromise. There would be two houses of the Congress, one of which would represent the people directly, and where larger states would have more representatives because they had more people, one of which would just represent the states, and every state would have the same uh, 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 number of representatives in it. The senators would serve longer terms, which would give them a longer time horizon and better perspective. The Senate would advise the president in a few ways, things like appointments and, uh, and treaties, um, and legislation would require the agreement of both of them as a way of making sure that you know, something just wasn't being hustled through one house while nobody was looking. Right. The part of that that makes the most sense is the idea of two houses um, so that law isn't made by hustling something through one house while no one is looking. Right. Yeah. The basic principle of bicameralism makes a bunch of sense if you think the two decision processes are less likely to go wrong than one. Most of the rest of the story makes a lot less sense than the civics book picture. Um, so, for example, the idea that the Senate represents the states in particular rather than the people. Once upon a time, that made some sense because in the 19th century, senators were appointed by state legislatures, right. not elected by the voters. And that meant that they responded to a slightly different set of concerns. The Senate had sort of a government eye perspective because of who the senators answered to. But for more than 100 years, we haven't done things that way. And people still go on saying things like the Senate represents the states, even though there's no empirical evidence that senators vote differently from members of the House of Representatives once you control from where they're from and what party they're from. Sure. They, they represent essentially the same set of interests. And one of the strangest things about the Senate today, of course, is the apportionment. That is to say, Wyoming gets two senators and Texas gets two senators, even though Texas has vastly more voters sure. than Wyoming, which is, you know, frankly, a, a deeply undemocratic feature. The... the then there are things like the filibuster that people talk about, that are topic today. And people usually, and senators usually talk this way also, when they talk about the filibuster, they say, this is a special thing that we have in the Senate. It reflects the fact that we are supposed to be a more deliberate, more considerate body than the House. Over in the House, you know, it's, it's too big a meeting to run politely, and right. <laughs> people do whatever they do. And over here, we're supposed to be a little bit more calm and a little bit more collected, and we can talk to each other and compromise and get 60 votes. The problem with this story is that there used to be a filibuster in the House also. Um, this is a largely forgotten detail of history. Yes. Until 1875, the House also had a filibuster rule. And the filibuster in the House disappeared under circumstances not so different from the circumstances under which parts of the filibuster are disappearing now in the Senate. But here's what happened. After the Civil War, the Republican Party, which was then the party of the North, yes. dominated Congress. And it tried to pass a bunch of legislation that was, it was early civil rights, anti-discrimination legislation. And some of it got through, but a bunch of it, the Democrats were blocking. 
And then there came an election in 1874 when the Democrats won majorities in Congress. And it was clear that once the Democrats got their majorities, the civil rights legislation was never going to get through. So in a lame duck session between the election of 1874 and when the new Congress took over in 1875, the Republican majority in the House eliminated the filibuster for the House of Representatives, just like the Senate Republican majority did now for the Senate. And they pushed through the Civil Rights Acts on straight majority vote. And the... um, uh, and the filibuster in the House disappeared, never to be heard from again. If there's a parallel with the present, it's this. The reason that the filibuster was eliminated was that the parties were not willing to compromise with each other anyway. Right. Which means that instead on. of the filibuster promoting compromise, what it did was allowed people to just block everything. The filibuster in both houses was useful when it was infrequently used, when a minority party could say, look, most of the time we understand we're the minority, like you guys get to set the agenda, we expect you to consult with us. If we think you're doing something really, really, really crazy, we're going to filibuster and slow it down and make it hard for you. But in the last 10 years, when senators routinely would filibuster legislation and nominees, over and over and over and over at the drop of a hat simply because they could, the tool became abusive. Right. And once the tool becomes abusive, at some point people are going to say, we're just getting rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Richard Primus. He's a constitutional law expert and professor at the University of Michigan Law School. We are talking about the decision to change the rules of the U.S. Senate so that there will no longer be 60 votes required to confirm Supreme Court justices. This was done last week by the GOP majority in the Senate to get Neil Gorsuch onto the Supreme Court, uh, someone who was nominated by President Donald Trump for that post. Uh, it was This was in response also to the fact that the Senate last year would not even give a hearing to Merrick Garland, who was President Barack Obama's uh, uh, nominee to the Supreme Court. Is this a big deal? Is this a big change in the way that the Senate operates? Is this a big deal in the way that we deal with bipartisanship in this country? the way we deal with closely divided questions among uh, people in this country and people in this Senate? Or is it just uh, a functional change that won't matter a whole lot? 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll work your comments into the conversation. Also, give us a call and talk about what you think the current climate is like in Washington, where Republicans and Democrats have gotten to the point where they need to eliminate this kind of 60-vote barrier in order to get things done. Uh, We've seen this happen at other times in our history in this country. What does it mean now? What does it mean for the future? What does it mean for the presidency of Donald Trump or whoever is the president after him? Are we headed into a period of 
hyper-partisanship that will maybe seesaw back and forth even between uh, Democratic and Republican control. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number to join that conversation. Let's go to Tom in northwest Detroit. Tom, welcome to Detroit today. Yeah, good morning, Steve, and good Mm -hmm. morning, Professor. You know what? When you drop that quote-unquote nuclear option bomb, it has consequences. And, you know, what's what's somewhat uh, funny to me is this, is that, you know, the Republicans think that they're going to be in power forever. And, you know, that, you know, the tables are not going to turn on them. But, you know, in terms of this whole thing with voting, uh, me, myself, personally, I think there should be a 51-49, you know, uh, vote to approve something. You know, and I, I understand for whatever reason why they chose 60 I mean, I was listening, but uh, it didn't stick with me. But, you know, why they chose the 60%, um, I, I can understand that, too. But um, you Well, know. the idea is that, the idea is that uh, when, when the country is sort of closely divided, as it is now, mm-hmm. so, so you've got uh, 52 Republican senators, uh, you have 48 Democratic right. senators, uh, that's, pretty, that's a pretty narrow margin. Right. Uh, the idea of the filibuster is to say, um, you know, that 52, that 52 votes can't just do anything it wants and mm-hmm. inflict it on, the, on a closely held majority, infli- inflict it through a closely held majority that you have to, you have to get some Democratic support. You have to get uh, some consideration from the other side in order to do big things. Uh, again, it's not in the Constitution. There's nothing that says the Senate has to operate that way. Uh, but it is the way that it has operated for a long time. And as uh, Richard Primus was pointing out, uh, it, it operated that way functionally when both when both parties were able to agree that generally their job was to get stuff done as opposed to just blocking the other side. Yeah, but how does it say? A house divided against itself shall not stand? Yeah. On that, that, I'll leave. You know, the other thing I think uh, that that is raised by your point, Tom, is this idea of what the future is going to look like. Uh, The GOP majority that we have right now uh, is, again, you know, uh, it's temporary. All majorities are. And if you look at the demographic trends in this country, uh, you look at the growth of immigrant populations, if you look at uh, the, 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 the growth of uh, new voters among young people and things like that, those trends are working against Republicans right now and suggest that in the future they might be more of a minority uh, than they have in the past. And that, uh, I think, it gets to your point, which is that uh, getting rid of this rule helps them in the short term. In the long run, that could end up being uh, a reason that, that as a minority, they have absolutely no, no say and no pushback power uh, in the Senate. So, uh, Tom, thank you very much for calling and making that point. I also want to thank uh, Richard Primus, constitutional law expert and professor at the University of Michigan Law School. He is always quite illuminating when he joins us here on the program. All right, up next, we're going to talk about the tension between the United States, Russia, and Syria. What is going on? What will happen next? And what are the interests that the United States ought to be thinking about when it's taking action in Syria? We want to hear from Aaron Reddish and Dr. Muhammad Hamami uh, of Wayne State of the Wayne County Health Department. Uh, we also are going to want to hear from you about that. What do you think about what Donald Trump did? last week in Syria. 
Do you support more military action, or do you think we ought to stay out of it? 313-577-1019 on the phones. We'll be right back on Detroit Today.